Welcome to the Coop Tank. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, coming to you from Towncast Studios in beautiful Mount Laurel, New Jersey. You got to check out Towncast Studios for your podcast needs, your videocast needs, anything like that, man. Matthew and Joe will hook you up. They're great guys. So check them out at towncaststudios.com or email them at info at towncaststudios.com. And I got to tell you, this is my first episode and uh, I'm excited to have my guest on. I, I met my guest. I was introduced to him from uh, Heather Sanderson from the Chamber of Commerce uh, Southern New Jersey, which is a great organization. And we did a one-on-one and then he came to my networking group, Coffee with Cooper. And then a while back, a while ago, my uh, my wife, Joanne, had an issue at work because basically her boss was a prick. And uh, Kevin came in and he, he helped her out and he guided her and she prevailed and we were all happy. But that's not why I'm having him on. I'm having him on because he's just a good guy. He works hard. He's a family man. He uh, gives to the community. He doesn't take anyone's shit, and that's what I like. And my guest is the uh, owner of KD Law. It's Mr. Kevin DeDuke. How you doing, Kevin? Hey, Coop. It's great to be here. I really appreciate the opportunity, and I especially appreciate being recognized as a professional asshole. Yeah. Well, there you go. Well, what's funny is I, I, I'm going to tell you why I brought you on as my first guest. Well, there's besides helping us out in law, you're someone who I respect because you have integrity. And you don't take crap. I remember you've had some issues with some businesses and, and you, you posted on Facebook. This is a problem. Now, a lot of people, and you know this in the community, won't do that because they're afraid of backlash. Because unfortunately, we are in a time where, you know, sometimes networking becomes a popularity contest for somebody instead of going for what they should do to network. And you were saying, you know, I don't care. And you were very tenacious about it. And you went after it. You had this tenacity. And I want to know, where does that tenacity come from? Have you been like that all your life? Or, or where does that like that? I don't give a crap. You know, I'm going to do this because it's right. And this is what I have to do. Where does that come from? It really comes from my parents, to be honest with you. Um, even from the early stages of my life, my mother told me that I should be a state trooper because I'd like to give people the business. But I don't like guns. And uh, I don't imagine putting myself in a uniform, and Lord knows I'm not fit enough to do that anyway, physically. So I just had this overall compulsion to tell people, you know, what I think, whether they want to hear it or not. Now, you said, you know, you want to be a state trooper when you're young. What were you like as a kid? I mean, what was what was your dream? Because it's funny. I always think, you know, we always change. Like when I was nine, I wanted to be an astronaut. But I'm on 11. I figured out I'm, I'm afraid of heights. So that doesn't work. But what was you, what would, what did you want to do? I mean, because there's a, there's a reason why you became a lawyer, I'm sure. But was there anything in your youth that pointed you to the direction that you thought, you know what, I might I might becoming a lawyer or did you were you just clueless? Just Judy. Honest to God, I was an unsupervised kid in the 90s and I spent most of my afternoons watching episodes of Judge Judy and hearing somebody hear a story that on its face might make a little bit of sense but when you look through the lines it's totally bullshit to watch somebody stand on a pulpit and really just call them out and say hey listen you know I know you think that's the truth but it's absolute crap and there's no reason why I'm going to believe it or you're going to believe it so let's cut to the business and watching that as an example as a kid growing up was something that said to me, you know what, that's kind of a good skill to have and it's already something that I kind of do anyway. So it, it just made sense to me um, as I got all along in life to be in that position, not to necessarily be a judge, but to just be able to give somebody honest, straightforward advice. Maybe they don't want to hear it. Maybe it's not what they're looking for, but it's what they need to hear. And I've fallen on the sword of being a villain in that context a number of times, right? So it's like uh, 
Harvey Dent said you either die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. <laughs> it's all, so so true in my business um, because there are 90,000 lawyers in the state of New Jersey, God help us, and somebody's going to tell the other person, that potential client, they have a case. They've got a case, and it's a great one. It's a slam dunk, and it's all it's going to take is a large retainer to get them the stars and the moon and a pony, and all their problems will be resolved. And I've just never been in the business of doing that. How does it make you feel when that happens? Because I've seen that with I've seen that with uh, you know, some of these business coaches or whatever they're you know these coaches or whatever they're called, the consultants. And a lot of times I think they just tell the person what they want to hear. And instead of saying, hey, you know what? No, here's what you need to do. They're saying, no, here's what you want to do, but you shouldn't do it. How does it make you feel when you see someone do something like that? Like a lawyer says, takes on a, gets an astronomical uh, retainer. And then all of a sudden you're like, there's no case. I mean, does that piss you off? Or is it just something you go, I feel bad for the person, but I don't it's embarrassing, frankly, because I, I've worked at firms in the past where uh, the, the managing partner has come to me and said, yeah, we have this new client, they have this issue, and they gave us a large retainer, we got to kind of figure it out. And I've turned to the other person and said, no, there, there, there's no figuring it out. Oh, how come? How come? Well, because what they want to do is either illegal or it's unethical. And the response that I've gotten is, what am I supposed to do now? I've already told them they have a case. Well, guess what? You can untell them, right? So it's much easier to fall on the sword in that respect and go back to the client and say, hey, listen, um, I know I told you this at one point. I know you gave me some money. And you know what? Maybe I need the money. Maybe I need the money because my kid is going off to college or my wife wants to buy X, Y, and Z. Um, But that's where integrity comes into play. And that's where you have to take that next step and say, all right, I screwed up, I made a mistake. And that's a lot of what people don't want to do, especially in business and networking, is admit when they've made a mistake. And I can't tell you how many times I've been called into a room and said, you know what, Kevin, you said X, Y, and Z to that person and it really upset them. And that's a moment for me to grow as a person and say, oh shit, you know what? You're right, that was a totally dick thing. I should not have done that. And I have more respect for the people that call me out on that, now, I'm expecting um, when this podcast goes out, I'm going to get a ton of phone calls saying, hey, man, listen, you said X, <laughs> Y, and Z, and here we go. And I'm like, you know what? I'm inviting it, right? So I'd much rather people understand that um, I care enough about them to tell them the truth, but I also care enough about them to hear the truth myself, which is something that a lot of folks don't want to do in business generally. You know, And for every client that comes to me and says, Oh, I spoke to five lawyers. They all said that I didn't have a case. Um, it's equally rewarding for me to say, you know what? I think you might have something here, and here's why. And then there's a practical balance, right? Because when folks go to a lawyer, they always assume a couple of things. One, they're going to spend a shit ton of money, large retainer, and they've got a problem they don't understand or can't resolve. I've never been in the business of telling people, only I can fix it. Only I can resolve your problem. Because the reality is, like I said, there's 90,000 of us out there in New Jersey. Somebody's going to be able to do it. Right. Now, now I got to ask you, what was your path 
to becoming a lawyer, in as in school wise, your undergrad, were you pre law or were you something else? And you decided to go. What was your path? Because I always wonder. I know a lot of people. Like I went to college for business management, but then I ended up at entertainment. My one, my my roommate was a marketing manager. He's a pilot. My other one was a math major. He de- designs restaurants in Toronto. So no one really follows their passion. We know it's. We no, sit there. And we go. And I always wondered, like when I was, I always said, you know, I, I would like to go pre law just because it sounded cool. You know, like you meet a girl at a bar, yeah, I'm free law. But I said, no, I'll just do business because I'm not going to go to law school. I'm going to comedy. But what was what was your college? What was your path to getting that I was that a history degree? major. I was a history major with a minor in American studies. And I wanted to be Mr. Feeney from Boy Meets World. I wanted to be a history teacher. And then I realized I don't like kids. <laughs> um, so I said, all right, well, I've got to kind of pivot a little bit. Then I got the idea that I was going to be an archaeologist. And I signed one with a firm called Hike Consulting in Little Creek, Delaware, to work uh, in the summer of 2007 as an archeological field hand. Best hand of my life. I was cut to the nines. I was out in the sweat, in the, in the heat, working crazy hours of the day to uncover mysteries of the great state of Delaware, which uh, you can sense the sarcasm in my voice. There really wasn't much of much there. Uh, in, in fact, at one point, I had uncovered a replica Civil War pin from about 1880s or so, and all these old guys came up to me. So, oh my goodness, that we've been in this field for 25 years, 30 years, 35 years. That's the coolest thing we've ever seen. And I said to myself, "Shit, you've been doing this shit for all that time. And this is the coolest fucking thing you've ever seen." <laughs> There's no way that I can stay in here, right? Uh, plus, money is a factor. Money is a factor in a lot of things in life, even though we don't want it to be, right? Uh, so the prospect of living in my truck didn't really appeal to me. Being a man down by the river in the Holy truck. smokes. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? So I, when I graduated in 2008, I had a history degree, and the economy was starting to fall apart, and I got into the banking world. I became a fraud investigator, which to me, here I am thinking I'm going to be Sherlock Holmes. I'm going to pick up a little magnifying glass and put a cap on, ask Watson to come and join me and solve all the mysteries of the great universe. In reality, I was working in a call center in customer security, verifying transactions that are suspicious activity. So I'd have some dude with a couple of bucks in his pocket buy porn online at eight in the morning, which... Forgive me, but I have no idea what people pay for porn online. And then he'd buy $2,000 worth of shoes a couple of hours later, and we'd have to call him, and he'd say, what the fuck? What do you mean? Uh, I, I can't buy porn and shoes in the same day? And I said to myself, you know what? There's more to life than this. There's absolutely more to life. But I didn't learn that lesson right away. I actually, because I was pretty young, I thought I was hot shit. And you know what happens to hot shit when it steps out in the sun, right? Nobody wants to touch it. it smells. And I, instead of being mature enough to realize that I didn't know what I wanted to do, I found mechanisms in my life and in the job that were shortcuts to get myself through the day. And it's just not the way you handle yourself. And it was a big lesson learned when they called me in the room and said, hey, we think you suck. And I said, well, wait a minute. I think I'm great. And they said, no, you suck, and here's why. Goodbye. And on that day, it was February 8th of 2009, I went home, 
and I was living with my folks and they said, well, we're going to move to Arizona. Um, they had been planning on it and they decided to break the news to me at that day. And then I called my dad who lived in New Jersey and I said, Hey, do you think I can come and live with you? He said, well, I really could use your help because I have bladder cancer and I could really use an extra set of hands. So in one day I lost my job, place to live. I moved in with my dad to help him with his cancer treatments. And it was, you know, as much a, a shitty feeling as it was on that day, it ended up becoming a really great day because it changed the trajectory of my life. And I ended up going to Barnes & Noble about a week or so later, looking in their career section of all the careers for dummies. And I found a book that said paralegal careers for dummies. And I said, well, maybe I'll become a, a paralegal. Read the first chapter. Paralegals do this. They do that. They help attorneys do this. Help attorneys do that. I said, well, shit. I'm young enough. Why don't I just become a lawyer? And that's when the path started. I ended up getting a job working in creditors' rights, bankruptcy foreclosure, uh, the height of the housing recession in 2009, and um, applied for law school, got in, and it's been a whole bunch of fun ever since. Yeah, I was going to well, you, so when you graduate, it's funny because I knew someone, my friend Bobby uh, in, in LA, he passed the bar the first time, but we knew this girl, Pauline, who was really book smart, but she like failed the bar like three times. And I heard the bar is hard to pass the first time. Did you, did you pass it the first time or did you fail it the first time? I passed New Jersey the first time. I took Pennsylvania and I failed Pennsylvania um, by four points. But that's okay. Failure's a failure, right? I mean, it is what it is. I had some things going on in my life at that time that weren't um, constructive. I lost a friend, a pretty close friend, to an unexpected illness um, about a month before the bar exam, and it took a toll on me mentally. Uh, plus, as is often the case with a lot of people in a lot of industries, you put too much pressure on yourself. So when the bar results came out, and I wasn't on the list of folks who passed the bar in Pennsylvania, the general consensus was, well, shit, we thought you were going to pass the bar. Well, so did I, except I didn't, so here I am. And I'll tell you, not passing the Pennsylvania bar was probably the, one of the best things that could have happened to me because it allowed me to focus my attention on New Jersey and all the problems that we have here in my career. And if I ever want to go ahead and torture myself and take the bar again in PA, I'll probably take it and I'll probably pass it. And if not, life goes on. But I feel really good about where I am and being able to pass the, the New Jersey bar at the time and under the circumstances that I that I pass it under. Now, you pass the bar, and like you said, there's 90,000 lawyers in New Jersey. There's a ton, and I'm sure, you know, you go into, you're looking for the right job. You know, you want to see what you do. I mean, I have a friend in Central Jersey who is a, uh, like a personal injury lawyer, and he has a, he makes bank, you know, and then he's just, he's, he'd be perfect for a commercial because he's a real good looking guy. I'm like, you got to do a commercial. He's like, I don't want to. He plays guitar. He's just a really hey. handsome guy. And I said, you got to do like one of those hokey commercials. You get so much stuff, but some of those commercials are just such bullshit. You're like, oh my God, right. I got this much from the guy. You're a fake. You're not real. But when you get your, when you pass the, the law degree, where do you start looking for? How do you decide what field of law you want to do and do you, decide, you know, that's what you're going to go after? Or do you say, I'm just going to take a job at any law firm 
that gives me a job, even if it's, let's say, copyright law or something, and I want, how do you find out what you're going to do? What's your path to getting to now where you are? But what was your first gig as a lawyer? Well, for me, it was by necessity. So when I first got into the legal profession, I was in creditors' rights and bankruptcy at the height of the housing uh, blow up in 2008, 2009. Um, what I ended up doing at that point was kind of sticking with where the money was and also where the opportunity was. Because when I graduated law school, I think there was about 120 or some of us who graduated and about 10 of us that had a job. And I was one of them. Uh, I was one of them because I didn't do the traditional thing in law school. Some folks go full-time during the day. Um, I went at night. I went in Widener's Extended Division program. So I get up every morning at about 630 be in work in Mount Laurel at about 7, 7.30. Um, I'd work until about 4. Then I'd drive to Wilmington every night, well, three, four nights a week. And I did that for four years. Um, and then in the, my last year, I was fortunate enough to be the editor-in-chief of the Law Review, which was great. But I had a staff of 45 kids who basically did not understand how the world worked. So as I was getting up and working myself to death, coming in, moseying into campus at 6.30, getting ready for class, they'd say, oh, shit, my life sucks. I had to get up for an 11 o'clock class today. And I'm like, shut the fuck up, please, by all means. I, I really don't want to hear this because I've been working my ass off. But the great, grateful part about it for me is I had a job. And that was a tremendous amount of pressure that I didn't have to face as I was taking the bar. The prospect that I could invest over $100,000 in a career and not have a job after I got my license, you know, so it took a lot of pressure off. So you got, where, where do you go from after that when you leave your first job? So when I left my first job, I made the decision. I've been traveling on the road for every day of the week, just about, um, was doing a lot of work for different lenders throughout the state of New Jersey, defending them in municipal court and also going to different superior courts throughout the state. And I ran into a bunch of older attorneys that had been doing it for decades. And I started to ask them, I said, hey, listen, you know, if you could do this over again, would you do it this way? Would you get up every every morning at seven o'clock and hit the road by eight to drive to East Jabumblefuck, New Jersey and defend some bank in front of a court? And I didn't get a single person that said, oh, absolutely, yeah, I would do that in a heartbeat. So it kind of made me realize that I needed to do more with the skill set that I had as a lawyer. And knowing that all lawyers, just like in every other profession, you know, we're all not all built the same, not all meant to do the same things. I realized that I had some skills maybe that some other folks didn't have, and I wanted to use them for better purposes. So I wound up getting a job working in a firm that specialized in redevelopment basically taking places in the state of New Jersey from where you don't want to go to where you want to be. And that was great for three years, except the people I worked with were totally toxic towards each other, towards me, towards their clients. And it was one of the experiences in my life where I realized, how do I want to treat people? How do I not want to be treated? And what are the expectations that I can give folks when they come to me for help? I can either stand on a high horse and look down at them saying only I can fix it or I can treat them like an equal person because at the end of the day, my craft is not their craft. You know, just because I'm a lawyer doesn't make me super special. How are they, how are they toxic to you? I mean, what made them toxic? Because we know, we, you know, you can always sit there and think 
something's toxic. And a lot of times you don't notice it. And then you look back, you go, holy shit, I'm, I'm walking on eggshells. That's one of the things I always think of toxicity, whatever it is. Uh, when you feel like you're walking on eggshells, when you go to work, you go, oh, but how was it, how were they toxic towards you? Well, one, I knew that I was a smart guy. I knew I was a good lawyer. And I would be told, no, you're not so great. Or, oh, you fucked this up. We're going to fix things, right? Everything's about language and how you, you know, as you're, as you're working with somebody, you can either choose to work with a firm or work at a firm. I never, a single day that I was there, worked with the other lawyers. I always worked for the other lawyers. So there's just a subservient attitude that was inherent in the work that we did. Um, not to mention the fact that uh, as we were working together, there was a control factor. It, it was a great idea. And it worked out. It was all my boss's idea, and it was great. And if it didn't work out, it was all my idea, and it sucked. So with that being said, you know, that's a level of toxicity that you just – your brain can go a certain way if you allow yourself to stew in that for long enough. And I made the decision that I wasn't going to do that because I have confidence. Probably have way too much confidence. Um, but the reality is I'd look to my right, and I'd say – no, I'm actually a pretty good lawyer, and so are you. And the person would look at me and say, no, I'm really bad. I'm not good. They think I'm not good. That means I'm not. I'm like, no, wake up. And I look to my left and I say, hey, man, you know, we're both good lawyers. And they'd be like, no, I'm not really a good lawyer. I've been told I'm not a good lawyer. So uh, here we are. I'm like, okay, you know what? This is a Twilight Zone episode. That's what this is. It's totally unfair to me, totally unfair to them, and just not something I wanted to be a part of. Now- you own KD Law right now. I met you though. You were when we met. It was through Heather, as I said, and because of our love of music, yep. and you started coming to Coffee with Cooper. But you were with another company at the time. What happened with that company? For the fact that because you know when I met you, you were new, and I think you were sort of new with that company, if if, if my memory serves me right. And everything's an exciting. It's a new. It's a new exciting job. So you go in there. You're excited. You're going, okay, this is going to kick ass. You're probably thinking, no one ever goes into a job and says, oh, I'm not going to be there for like two months. You're probably thinking, okay, I'm going to grow to this, make partner, however that shit works. I don't even know how that works. But so you, you went to that company. How did you end up with them? And then what happened with your stint there that actually ended up making you go out on your own, which you've been kicking ass? What was what was, what was the course of action in that? So I knew the lawyer that I had um, pseudo partnered up with and joined up with for about six years, on and off. You know, you meet somebody for coffee and you learn a little bit about them, and then maybe you meet them up again another year later and you learn a little bit more. Uh, it's a testament to just not knowing a person well enough to decide whether you're going to get in bed with them or not. But I wanted to take a chance. I didn't have enough confidence in myself to go completely solo on my own. So I decided to tether myself to somebody that I just didn't know well enough. Um, within three weeks, I discovered this person was an absolute idiot. They would come to me with ideas and things that we should do for clients that were totally wrong, totally illegal, unethical. And I'd got a lot of pushback in terms of, well, we've already told the client that we can do this. Reality was, you, know, you need to untell them. So working in there, you know, people always say, if you're successful, great. If we're successful, even better. Well, as I started to 
kind of sort of build my network of people and my client base. The other side of the of the docket was less and less enthusiastic for me than I would have expected them to be because that wasn't the deal, right? I came on and they said, if you're successful, great. We'll support you to high hell. And that just wasn't the case. There was jealousy. There was bitterness. And it's kind of like dating an ugly girl that you don't know is super ugly. And nobody has the courage to tell you. Because I go to certain rooms and say, oh, yeah, I'm with so-and-so. And they'll be like, oh, great. Good for you. Um, I got to go. And it's like, well, come on. How come they're not excited about me? How come? And then when you break up, they're like, shit, man, she was ugly as hell. Why didn't you tell me? Well, the reality is we didn't want to break your heart. You were in love, right? You thought everything was going to work itself out. As my business continued to grow, my personal book of business continued to grow, the divide between the two of us separated even more. And it became contentious on a level that just wasn't healthy. So here I was working on my clients, giving away about 30% of my business to somebody who could give two shits about me. But I still, in my heart, thought, they, they care about me as a person. So I'm going to continue to do it. And I didn't have the confidence enough to go out on my own completely. Uh, And I got to a point where on January 18th of 2021, I had a stroke. And it was a direct product of working too much, trying to uh, support my family financially in a way that I hadn't before, not eating enough, not sleeping enough, and just flat out not taking care of myself. And I remember two things specifically as the EMTs were rolling me out of my house in the winter. One, fuck, it's cold. (laughs) But I can only feel that brisk air on the left side of my face. And my other thing, my other thought was, Jesus Christ, Kevin, what did you do to yourself? How could you do this to yourself? Because people know when they're fucking up, right? Like people like to play dumb. People like, oh, I didn't know that was going to be a problem or I didn't know I was on the wrong path. No, I fucking knew. Like I knew where things were going. Did I think it was going to lead to that particular moment in time? No. But nobody really ever does know that moment. They always kind of sort of think it's not going to happen. I I ended up, you know, 10 years ago uh, when I was in LA, I ended up, I had congestive heart failure and I was walking around. I felt like hell and I just started dating Joanne and I flew across the country. I don't know how I got back. And then I got back to LA and I got taken to the hospital. I said to my buddy, drop me off. And you're right. I knew the lifestyle I was living. But the thing is, and the choices you make, the day I was in the hospital for four days or five days and the day I walked out, I said, I was a smoker, not heavy, but a smoker, no more cigarettes. I would do a conventional illegal drug, but hey, it's LA. Never that, never again. And never again, caffeine. And I gave them all up 10 years ago, walked out the door and I said, to hell with it, because it's something I had to do because that's when, like you said, when you had the stroke, when you, that's the point when you look and you go, holy shit, do I want to live or do I want to sit there and be that idiot that everyone says, ah, oh, yeah, you know, yeah, Jim had three heart attacks and he kept smoking. I mean, so for you, when you were on that gurney or whatever it is, I mean, your realization was probably you really have to change. I had to change. I had to figure out a way that was going to be 
beneficial for my family, beneficial for me, um, and, and true to myself and what I wanted to do. So after three days in the hospital, I was still kind of on the fence about where to go. Uh, and then I got a phone call that made all the sense in the world and told me exactly where I needed to go. And it was from the gentleman who I was working with. And he asked me how I was doing. And he said, you know, um, I was thinking about this. You know, I think you're working too much. And I think you're working too much. And, and you know, you've got all these clients of your own. You know, I think we should get rid of those and you should come and work for my clients. And that way, you know, you're you're doing a little less work, but you're helping me. He said, you know, when, I, when you came on, I really thought you were going to be doing more of my work than your own. I didn't expect you to be, you know, able to draw your own water at this stage. And it was like that point in a movie where you, you have a character in the movie that you think is the good guy. And at the very end, he turns out to be the bad guy. That was the moment that I had on that phone call where I said, not only do I have to separate myself from this person, but I also have to make my own path. And yeah, opening up your own business, it's a bitch. <laughs> it's not as easy as it looks. Uh, and it's certainly a lot more stressful, but I control my own destiny. And if I want to put the ball away and never come back to the court, I can do that. I have to go somewhere else and make money elsewhere, but I'm the one that gets to say whether I can do that or not, not somebody else. Uh, so it's that's when I decided I needed to open up my own practice. Now, in the beginning, is it is it fearful? Because you know, I talk to a lot of musicians, and when I talk to someone when a band breaks up, they've lost that that what they're used to. You know, they're going on their own. For you, you said there's one thing to say, oh yeah, I'm going on my own. There's two to actually do it and make a, a successful business, which you've done. How did you hit the ground running? You already had a network. You already had those clients, but I'm sure there may have been a legal issue. I don't know about the clients you brought in. I don't know how that works, but how did you sit there and start building your business to the point where it is now? When I opened up the firm March 1st of 2021, uh, I, I kind of had a feeling that people were going to support me. In no way, shape, or form did I ever expect the level of support that I've gotten. Sometimes I feel like people have gotten into legal conundrums just to send me business, right? <laughs> um, it, it's been awe-inspiring, frankly. And I had some lead generation sources that I used initially to kind of get some cases in the door. But at the end of the day, so much of what I was getting was coming from folks who said, hey, support Kevin. Kevin's a good dude. He's a good lawyer. You know, see if you like his his style. And even today, I point folks to our Google reviews to say, if you want to get a sense of how we treat people, just read those, you know, because we've had so many opportunities to help so many people, and it's been just tremendous. I just didn't expect it. Now, Besides being a lawyer, I know you're you're a family man. You're I met your kids at the event, and there was uh, people here this carnival. Like me, the idiot, I got into a dunking booth, which is I'm like I can't I can barely swim, and I'm like screw this. I'm like I thought I was going to drown in like three feet of water. It was the coop tank. It was the coop tank. But what you know, 
besides being a good father, you give so much back to uh, the community. You're always sponsoring stuff. I always see, you know, Kevin Duke sponsored this or this Katie Law or this and this. How did you get this social consciousness to sit there and actually give back? I mean, because a lot of people, a lot of people say they give back, but when they give back, they go, oh yeah, hey, did you see I uh, gave this to such and such? You don't say that. You don't ask for the admiration per se, but how did you get the social consciousness? Is that something from when you were a kid? Was your family like that? Or is it just something that you grew up and then when you said, holy shit, I had a stroke, I could have fucking died. I'm going to give back. When when has this happened and, and, and what makes you so charitable? It's a little bit of both, right? So when I was a kid, my parents were divorced early age and my mom opened up her own business with my grandmother and uh, she basically lied on her loan application to get the opportunity to buy the business. So we struggled a lot as a kid. Um, in fact, I was I lived with my mom and my brother and my, my grandmother and we slept in a twin-size bed, the three of us, my Self, my brother, and my grandmother for the just about the first seven years of my life. I didn't have the shiny new toys and the cars. I had the stuff that was kind of handed down from me from other folks. When I was seven, we found out that there was spoiler alert: no such thing as Santa Claus, because my mother had to make the decision whether she was going to pay our rent that was three months behind, or if we were going to get Christmas presents. So. Sure, we could have had our Power Ranger toys played out in the snow with them or had a place to sleep, and she chose to give us a place to sleep. But like all things in life, in all businesses, there's ebbs and flows, and the next year things were great, and we got everything. We got more than we ever really deserved at that point. So I know what it's like to not have much of much, and with that in mind, you know, being in the position I am thankfully in life where I can give a little bit back, I'm cog- I try to be as cognizant as I possibly can about what it feels like to be on the receiving end of those gifts. And that's what helps motivate me. I also worked for firms where their whole outfit was, well, we're going to give money to everybody and the expectation is that we're going to get something back for it. We're going to donate to this charity and you know, wave the white flag and say, hey, look how great we are. Um, the worst are those big fucking checks. That's That to me, you know, when you look at a bunch of schmucks in line holding a giant check to an organization and it says $500, that's a bunch of shit to me, right? Add a couple of zeros to that and you get to hold that check. But as far as I'm concerned, people really love to promote themselves through charity I don't do that. I promote the charities through myself so that people recognize what other folks are trying to do that's good out there. And that to me is, is it's a part of who I am because I've been, again, on the receiving end of those gifts. That's where we are. Who are some of the charities you, you are supporting right now and, and how did you pick them? So I am a true advocate for a kid again, the Mid-Atlantic chapter chapter, which I'm a member of their uh, uh, advisory committee and their board, rather. Um, That's a wonderful organization that supports local families in need. Kids with debilitating injuries and illnesses, and it actually provides them an opportunity to go out on these things called adventures. 
where they get to forget about all the horrible things going on in life and be a kid again. I support them because I've got two healthy kids at home that aren't in that situation. So that's an easy one. Um, Maryville Addiction Treatment Centers, their campus is in Williamstown. I actually um, have been supporting them for a couple of years now. And there's a personal connection. Um, when my parents were divorced, my dad went on a pretty dark path in life. And you know, I suffer from depression. My mother suffers from depression. And my dad suffers from depression as well. I was diagnosed when I was 31. My mom was diagnosed, I think, when she was 52, 53. And my dad was diagnosed when he was in his late 30s. But my dad's treatment was drugs and alcohol. And as a result of going down that path, he actually ended up spending some time in a rehab center. And I always remembered that as a kid, you know, the struggle that he went through through recovery, which is such an honorable struggle to go through and come through on. Um, so that always stood, stood out to me. So when I met Bill Crow, who's the, um, the uh, business development manager for Maryville, he brought me out to the campus in Williamstown and we had a nice time kind of looking at everything. And I got to meet some of the folks that were staying there and going through recovery. At the end of the day, he handed me a uh, portable charger with the Maryville logo on it that I took home with me just as a gift for my commitment to the leadership council. I thought it was a great gift. I took it home and I laid it on the counter and I started to charge it. A couple of days later, my dad came to see us and the kids. He looked at the table and said, Maryville, what the hell's going on? Which, you know, they don't really give you souvenirs when you leave rehab. So I, I assume he knew something else was going on. I said, oh, yeah, I just signed on to be on the leadership council for Maryville in Williamstown. He said, that's where I stayed. And at that point, I had no idea that that is where my father went to rehab was the Williamstown campus for Maryville. So that was an immediate impact on me personally and professionally. Um, and just an opportunity to give back and latch onto an organization that, that does for folks what maybe people don't want to talk about, but what people need. Well, you know, it's funny. I'm going to ask you this because you're talking about what people don't want to talk about. <laughs> Tell me what you hate about networking. Like me personally, because I always, I always find out because, you know, we both network a lot. We're both out there. That's how we met, networking. And, you know, I, I hate when people go, oh, you're a power networker because I hate that because I feel like I should have like a big robe and there should be horns going, bring on the power networker. Do, 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 do. I'm like, kiss my <laughs> ring, kiss my ring. Yeah, right. I hate that term, just like power partners. I always feel every partner is a power partner. And I hate clicks. I hate the clicks because I always think, you know, you don't go to networking to be popular because if you did that, you screwed up in high school or college. Sure. What do you – well, first of all, what do you – first tell me what you don't like about networking and then tell me what you really enjoy about networking. What I don't like about networking probably comes down to this obligation people feel to focus on themselves and what you can do for them as opposed to what they can do for you. Because networking, in my mind, is not about – putting yourself out there as much as it is to get from people as it is to give. 
you make your services available to people. You make your knowledge, your experience, your field, your craft available to folks. And with a giving mentality, that should come natural to you. Where some people kind of go astray is when they get desperate and they feel this obligation, they have to toot their own horn, say how great they are, and then ask people for business. That's counterintuitive to me. So I don't care for that very much. Um, I, I also don't like people who unnecessarily boast themselves and their credibility and their credentials for the sake of listening to other people and what they might need. It's one thing to talk about your weekend and say, oh, look at me, I'm great. I took my kids on my boat and we saved you know, five kids and a baby seal on the way back. That's great. Good for you. How does that help me understand how our businesses connect and we can help each other? And there's a give get and there's also in my eyes, you know, as an attorney, yeah, it, it's a craft, right? Like I went out and got a license to practice law and a license um, to basically write bullshit for a living. That's fun. It's important. It has a role, but it is no better than what anybody else will do. And that's another part about networking that I really don't like is people assume because they have a specialized craft that their craft and their fit into the world is somehow better and makes them better than other people. Well, I'm not going to talk to that person because they can never do anything for me. Well, shit, maybe you could do something for them and maybe they know somebody. The short-sightedness of networking is really what drives me crazy. Someone will not talk to another person at a networking event because they feel as if they cannot get any business from that person. The reality is if you have a network and they have a network, then they know other people other than you, which means that you put yourself out to them and you be kind and gentle and you act like a professional. And then they remember that because people might forget what you say. They will never forget how you, that you make them feel. And in that moment, if you walk away and say, well, he's just another fucking lawyer, just, a, just another dick out there, the reality is that's the image that you're going to perpetuate to their industry. So when somebody calls them up and says, hey, um, I'm looking for a lawyer that does this, are they going to think of you in a positive light? No, not at all. Now, what do you love about networking? I love getting to know people personally and to care about them, Right. So obviously we're there for business purposes. That's what initially brought us all there. But at the end of the day, we're all human. So getting to know people and become friends with them and find out what their lives are like outside of their jobs, that's a true joy for me because that gives me an opportunity to make a friend and make a connection that goes beyond a, hey, I do this and you do that. So, One final question that has to do with that. You're 36. Clean cut, look like a lawyer. How did you become a deadhead, and why do you not wear shoes in your office? I always wonder because it's like you know. I, I I told Matthew before I was at the Chicago concert the other night, and there was these two young girls sitting next to us. They're like probably nineteen. They're doing the duck face in the back. I, I told him, I said, I said, because these are really good seats. I mean, I, I had gotten, and I said, how are you a Chicago fan? And they go, well, we love the band, but. We know someone in a band, and we think it was the it was one of their father's friends because I saw them t- FaceTime with their dad and their mom. 
But how did you become a deadhead? And what's with the no shoes thing? Because I, I walked in your office, I was like, holy shit. And I have nothing against it, but I'm like, what's he not? He's not wearing shoes. Couple of things. The deadheadness came from listening to too much music that was not negative, but just super aggressive, right? So when I first became a lawyer, I was running all over the state and I thought I was God's gift to the law. And it was just, I was super hard charged or unnecessarily so. And I listened to a lot of Iron Maiden on the road, which was nothing like going to court, listening to Trooper, <laughs> saying to yourself, shit, you're going to fuck them all and let God decide. It's just not healthy, right? And then on April 22nd of 2016, my life changed forever. I became a dad to a nice little girl named Sarah. And I thought to myself, I've got a choice here. I can either stay on this hard charger route or I can soften up a little bit. And I started to look at different things in my life that I was focused on that were unnecessarily aggressive. And that's when I started to hone my own craft of picking and choosing when to be a dick and when to not be a dick. So I cut the maiden out to a point, and I asked a friend of mine, hey, do you have any recommendations for music that, you know, guys that need to soften up a bit could listen to? And he said, well, why don't you try the Grateful Dead? I said, shit, it's just a bunch of pot smokers. I have, I have no interest in hippie music, right? So I, I ended up giving it a try, and I listened to American Beauty. And when Box of Rain came on, it's the first track in the album. It hit me that life could be different and that I could feel a different way about music and feel a different way about the influence that music can have on me such that I could soften up the tone. So I started to listen to The Grateful Dead. And I, like every true deadhead fashion, I had my own journey. And I didn't feel comfortable even calling myself a deadhead at first, to be honest with you, because I'm thinking – Shit, that's just a poser word, you know, for people that might have listened to American Beauty once after they were told chill, which was me. So <clears throat> the way that I, quote unquote, crossed the rainbow bridge into the world of calling myself a deadhead was I listened to every album on the Europe 72 tour. That to me was a journey. Now, deadheads out there will recognize it. it's about 27 different shows some of which are relatively the same thing, but equally prolific in terms of the dead and folks who enjoy their music. And from there, I said, okay, I've done that. I'm a deadhead now. The no shoes thing came from working in an office where everybody was told they have to dress up and look a certain way. Even if you weren't busy, even if you had nothing to do or you weren't seeing any clients, you had to sit in dress pants and a dress shirt with dress shoes on just to kind of feel like you were a lawyer. And I'm a firm believer there's three types of lawyers out there, the shirts, uh, the shorts and board short lawyer, the suit and tie lawyer, and the three-piece suit lawyer. I'm unequivocally the board short and shirt lawyer, right? Um, so when I come into my office, I want to be comfortable and when folks come into the office, I want them to be comfortable too. It's basically the first sign that I'm not sitting on a high horse when they come in to talk to me. And that's important. That's, a, that's a, as important of a symbol 
to give to folks that come in as it is an opportunity to show myself that I can loosen up and be the deadhead inside that I know that I am. Well, there you go, man. I, I want to thank you for coming on. Give a give yourself a little promo. Tell us where to find you, what to do, all that good stuff. Because people want to people after this interview, they're going to go, "Hey, we like that Kevin guy. He's a pretty interesting guy." So tell us where everyone can get in touch with you. Yeah, I appreciate that, Coop. So anybody that wants to reach out to us, we're Katie Law. We're a comprehensive real estate law firm in Haddonfield, New Jersey. You can Google us, KD Law, and my last name, D-I-D-U-C-H. Um, you can reach us out online, Facebook, Instagram, or The Gram, as people call it. Uh, we're not on TikTok yet. Don't think we ever will be, but maybe. Um, and anything in between. I'm always happy to answer any calls, questions. You can reach our office at 856-888-6050. All right, and people, I want to thank, first of all, uh, Linda Milano from uh, – CFB promotional products made this great coupe tank shirt that I'm wearing today. And and I, I know I always I'm glad my face isn't on it because I don't want to wear a shirt with my face on it. But this looks like a brand. People are not going to say, oh, what's the coupe tank? If it's me, they're going to go, oh, it's oh, the coupe tank, some lazy eyed dude talking shit. Um, so thank you, Linda. I want to thank Towncast Studios. You know, you guys, you got to go to TowncastStudios.com. They're excellent. I mean, we're in the studio. You know, there's a lot of places out there, but you want to choose these guys because Matthew has been in the business forever. Joe's a great guy. I met him at an event. And you got to go to their website. Uh, check them out. It's TowncastStudios.com. And uh, email me at thecooptank at yahoo.com. And in the midst of getting my website put up, uh, the Coop Tank will be coming to you every week. And soon in the fall, we'll be doing a Coop Tank uh, paid networking group, which will be very insightful. Something like me and Kevin have just talked. We'll do things like that. So people, please keep following us. I'm Steve Cooper, and thank you for joining the Coop Tank.